Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 this morning, we have a great privilege to study God's Word as always. If you are with us, I don't see anybody in the congregation that's with us, but if you are with us online for the first time, we welcome you and we rejoice that you're able to uh, be a part of this worship. You've come in the middle of our study of Romans 9, probably one of the most difficult parts of the Bible, at least for us humans to receive and understand. It deals with the sovereignty of God and salvation. Does God choose whom He will save, regardless of what they do? Does He predestinate people? Or does He respond to the decisions and actions of men and save them based upon what they do? That's the question. And what you believe on this will determine your worship, your evangelism, your church philosophy, the way you suffer, the way you endure. Let me give you just a basic example as we start. If you believe God reacts or responds to what we do, if you believe God responds to man's free will decision to follow Jesus, then evangelism is really an an effort of of spiritual persuasion, of of spiritual coercion. And the whole objective of a church then, the institution of the church, is is to draw people in. It is to attract people in. And then to, as quickly as possible, convince them to make that decision to which God will respond in a saving way. The institution of the church is fundamentally in that paradigm, an effort of attraction and persuasion. On the other hand, if you believe God chooses His children independently of what they've done or what they will do, completely detached from human activity, then the job of evangelism is essentially a a rescue mission of God's children. You go out and you spread the gospel everywhere, knowing that God, in His sovereign will, that you don't know, that you cannot see, in His sovereign will, has chosen people for salvation, and He's decided to include us in the saving of lost souls. They hear the gospel... They seize the lifeline of that gospel. They respond and have faith just according to God's magnificent plan. They hear the gospel and are saved. And so the church's objective is that of of celebration, that of equipping, that of accountability and maturity and growth. It's it's that of equipping the saints to, to send them out. Of course, the saints gathered are the church. That's why we call it church. The gathered ones, really the chosen ones, the, the called out ones. In this paradigm, the institution of the church is fundamentally not of attraction and persuasion, but fundamentally that of equipping and, and creating a, a community of people who are accountable to one another to grow and to live like Christians and to celebrate what God has indeed accomplished in their hearts. Now, let me say this. There are God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians that differ in these ways, that differ about the, this essence of God's salvation, that differ about what churches exist for. Now, you need to know that we here at NBC welcome everybody. We welcome everybody wherever they are and whatever struggle they're going through in terms of their understanding of God's sovereignty in salvation. You don't need to feel in any way that we insist that you believe every last thing and understand every last thing that the elders believe in order to be a part of this church or in order to be saved, in order to be a member of our church. However, if you've been with us the last few weeks, it's pretty clear where Paul stands on this issue, isn't it? He believes in a sovereign God who chooses His children independently of their 
choice of God. They do choose God, and they do use their wills. They exert willpower, their volition to choose God. They choose God with their heart, but that's simply because of what we just sang about moments ago, because God loved them first and chose them and inspired them and made them able, capable to repent of their sin, which they inevitably and always do. There in verse 11, we noted last time when we were together, speaking of God's choice to save Jacob rather than Esau, what was the basis, basis of that thought? You say, how does God do this? What is God's, what, what's the basis of the saving of Jacob and the lostness of Esau? Human will, human decision, human effort? Paul says no. In verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, he's separating, he's detaching God's decision from human activity, human will, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Now, this is Paul's argument. We believe Paul's words here are not ultimately his words. Ultimately, they are the word, words of God, and we agree with this position. It defines our efforts. It defines our church. It defines our worship. It defines our music, our ministry, what we think the objective of the church is. And so we thought it would be good as elders when this subject came up in the parables, we thought it would be good to walk through the sovereignty of God in salvation. No, you will not understand everything. Our minds are finite. Every question will not be answered. But in walking through Romans 9, we hope to answer some of the most basic questions, just as Paul does to sort of an imaginary congregation there at, uh, uh, at Rome where he would imagine some questions would be arising from. All right, let me read you the text. Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18. Follow along. I'm going to read aloud. Romans 9, 14 to 18. Paul has stated and illustrated this truth, this fact, this doctrine, and now he's going to answer and go through sort of systematically and give us sort of three answers to the three most common objections to the doctrine of God's election. And this is the first one, and the next week we'll look at the next, the, the, the final two, and we'll be finished with our study in Romans 9. Romans 9, verses 14 to 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and I... That, I'm, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is the word of God. There is something, I think, down deep in the heart of every thinking human being, every sentient human, and it's a desire to believe that they are in control of their own destiny. He's ultimately the decision maker, that he's ultimately, when it boils down to it, it's, it's ultimately up to him. I don't know if you've ever come across this, but the history of the instant cake. Anybody ever heard the history? Probably not. That's just weirdos like me. The history of the instant cake goes somewhat like this. They, they came up with the instant cake in the 1920s, and it was kind of strange back then. They had they de had dehydrated eggs, they had dehydrated flour and sugar and some other ingredients that were put in there. And in fact, some of them, in order to add fluff to the cake, they added 
chips of soap in there, which bring some of an interesting flavor to your cake. Uh, they, they sold some instant cake, but it just wasn't a smashing hit. People weren't buying the cake. And so General Mills did a survey. They, they asked a whole bunch of people, they surveyed them as to why they weren't buying instant cake. And to their shock, what they discovered is that the reason people didn't buy instant cake is because people felt like it was a little too easy. They wanted to feel like that they were involved somehow in making that cake good. And so this is what General Mills, who's the, I think, producer of Betty Crocker, General Mills decided, okay, we won't put dehydrated eggs in there. We'll just ask the people who are baking these cakes to, to add eggs and mix the eggs in. They did that, and the rest is history. I mean, instant cake is an American pastime, I think. Everyone has instant cake. We do it all the time. This is kind of the first step to, for anybody. However, I, I have still yet to make a, a good instant cake. I don't think I can ever get anything right. But it's, it's something in the heart of man that wants to feel like I'm at least a little bit responsible for this. It, it's a little too easy just to add some water and mix it and put it in the oven. No, I've got to crack some eggs. I have to feel like I, I'm at least a little bit responsible for the way this cake turned out. Well, the same could be said of salvation, right? People are fine giving God credit. People are fine giving God a lot of credit, praising God for His grace, singing of God's mercy. They're happy to give Him almost all the credit for salvation, but they want just a little bit of the action. And so they devise, I think this goes back, in fact, all the way throughout history, they devise sort of an instant cake salvation. They, they devise a, a salvation that at least in some little way they can take credit they devise, and I've mentioned this a couple of times before, they devise a synergistic salvation, God and me sort of working together. And maybe God does 90%, but I crack the eggs. I do the one important thing. Paul says, no, this great salvation is his from first to last. The writer of, the writer of Hebrews says he is the author and finisher of our faith. The idea, this doctrine of salvation is what is called, from the Bible, is what is called monergistic salvation. Again, I mentioned this earlier. It's monergistic rather than synergistic. Synergistic, working alongside, working together, benefiting from one another. It's the position of those, say, those who say that, that God sort of waits around for our decisions and responds. Monergistic says God is indeed the author of our salvation from start to finish. It's all God. And even if you do make a choice, and even if you willfully choose God, and even if you pray a prayer of repentance and, and surrender all, you know that it's because God gave you the grace to do just that. And so you give Him the glory. Well, most of the first century Jews believed that in order for God to be faithful to His promises, in order for God to be faithful to the covenant... God had to save all Jews simply by virtue of the fact that they were Jewish. They had presumed, and, and some false teaching had come in, lots of false teaching had come in and, and infiltrated Jewish teaching at that point. They presumed that God was forced to save them by dint of the fact that they were Jewish. Now, maybe they would push it a little bit more. Maybe they would say, well, good Jews, practicing Jews, people who at least did some of the rituals and followed along and Judaism. And Paul came along and said, salvation is rooted in God's sovereignty, in God's decision. It's not your genetics. It's not your effort. 
It's nothing you've done. And then he gives us a couple of examples, as we studied last time. He gives us a couple of examples of how God just reaches down in the heart of man and regenerates them regardless of their own effort, regardless of their own activity. And a lot of us are just like the Jews of that first century, the Jews there at Rome who may hear that idea that God does that, and there may be a little bit of a turmoil in our heart. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sit right. We, we feel like we're supposed to. Maybe we were raised in a, a context that, that always that, that pushed so much on, on the need to make a decision. Maybe they ignored the idea of God's sovereignty and salvation. They just passed over those verses in the Bible so that we sort of walk away believing that maybe it does boil all, down, all the way down to our decision, not God's sovereignty. And for us, maybe it offends us a little bit, and maybe it offends our sense of what is fair. Well, it did the people in the first century. It offended them. It offended the doctrines that were taught by them uh, from the rabbis and the Pharisees and the scribes. It offended their, their sense of personal righteousness and their accomplishment in the religion of the Jews. And like I said, it offends people today. I think my dad, uh, when... I began to battle through this and began to look at it. I think my dad, who sat me down and just walked me through this chapter and just said, what is this really saying? What's the face value of these verses? And you don't have to jump through any hoops. You don't have to do any kind of linguistic study. You just read this, and it's pretty plain that he, Paul is saying, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that God ultimately is the one responsible for our salvation. Though we are responsible to, re to repent and have faith, that action is even given to us. Ultimately, when I finally came to the Lord, I, I was still in turmoil and actually was in turmoil for several weeks because it just sounded so harsh and so different from my ears. I just had never heard anything like that. It sounded so, so weird to me that, that I finally had to just come to the point where I said, Lord, it's hard for me to believe. I don't understand it all, and I've never believed this before, but you, clearly your Bible says it, so I'm just going to believe it. I don't can't map it out of my brain, but I'm just going to surrender and believe what your word says. And over time, the joy that I found far exceeded whatever joy I had before, the joy of giving God all the credit for my salvation, not taking any credit for any of it, even the choice I made, even with my volition and willpower, my repentance, I took no credit knowing that that even was a gift of God. It changed my worship, it changed my joy, it changed my endurance, my perseverance, changed my understanding of evil, it changed my preaching. To submit to this truth actually opened a door of submitting to God's truth more readily, not just the doctrine of election, but all across the Bible, the doctrines that are given there. It, it, it gave me a, a willingness to submit to all that God has said, even the hard things. Well, just as Paul wanted the early Jews to submit to this truth, I too would love for you to submit to this truth as well. And my prayer is that you'll find greater glory, greater evangelism, greater joy, greater submission to all of God's truth as we study these passages. Now, as we've seen in this chapter, Paul sets out the principle there in verses 6 through 13 after an introduction. For his glory, for his purposes of election, God chooses to save some and to reprobate others. And I said last time, Paul knows this will stir people up. He will begin to answer these questions, these objections in the rest of this chapter, which I said earlier we're going to look at 
Today we're going to look at the first objection, and the next time we'll look at the other two objections and how Paul answers them. Look there in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The word injustice there has a passing reference to unrighteousness, but it's best understood as unfaithfulness. Is God unfaithful to those promises? Is this not fair? Is this not according to the promises? This would have been a key question for the Jews. Their understanding of salvation, what they grew up learning, is that God must honor the covenant promises because of who they were, Jews. What they did practiced Judaism. They were taught from from childhood, from some of their favorite rabbis, they were taught a reactionary God. God looks at man to, to find his cues on whom he should save. And he designs his plans over man's activity. But when they heard what Paul was saying, it sounded like God was unfair and he was unfaithful to his promises. And what Paul says essentially in this chapter is God alone is the source of our salvation. That's the subject of today's message. God alone is the source of our salvation. Paul answers, God is fair and faithful. God becomes true and righteous and just, not because of what you do. God is fair and just apart from you. He always does what is right. He always does what is fair. Your sense of fairness is corrupt. It is a failure. Go on later and say, who are you? The molded to say to the molder, why have you made me this way? No, we have no business questioning God. God is the ultimate source, and it is in Him and of Him and for Him that He saves anybody. God's faithfulness emanates from His character. God's salvation emanates from His freedom to choose, from His plan, from His virtue, His holiness. God doesn't map His plan because of your virtue or your righteousness or the decisions you make. God's faithfulness is based ultimately and solely upon His own plans, his own virtues, his own character, his own will. Paul says, God is faithful, God is just, his promises are carried out, that these are because of his character, his choice, his plan, not yours. And this is essentially what Paul is answering this first objection with. Let God be true and every man be found a liar. He says earlier in Romans chapter 2, I believe, God's salvation of man comes from his perfect being. God's decisions and His decisions to elect people don't come, doesn't arise out of man. It arises out of His own character. So He must be the source of our salvation. All right, let's take some notes. Write this down. Number one, salvation begins with God's will, not ours. Salvation begins with God's wills. Again, I hasten to add, it's not that our wills are completely uninvolved. No, our wills are involved. But that's only after God makes His decisions. The question is about fairness. Paul, is what the Jews may have been saying, we have been faithful Jews. We have done what we're supposed to do. We're moral. We're good. It's, it's unfair that God would not choose us. In fact, Paul, as, as Jews, this, this seems like if he just chooses people, he would not only be unfair, he would be unfaithful to those promises, all those things we've learned about God blessing the Jews. And again, this is sort of a common 
thought when it comes to the doctrine of election. It sounds unfair. God is not factoring in our choices. It seems like it would be unfair if He didn't factor in what we do. Again, that's by our evaluation, by our fairness. Well, how does Paul respond? Always the first thing Paul does is he looks to Scripture, and he takes us to Scripture. He takes us specifically to Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. It's, we can find it in our fifth, verse 15 there. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, we have to go back a little bit and remember what God was doing with the people of Israel back in the time of Moses. This is back in Exodus chapter 33, like I said, and Chapter 32 is where the people had built this golden calf. Moses was up on the mountain of God receiving the commandments, and the people got a little bit impatient. They asked Aaron to make them a golden calf that they could worship. So Aaron collects a bunch of their gold. He asked some craftsmen to make a huge gold calf, and they all start worshiping this false god. And by the way, they weren't just bowing and going through some religious rituals to this golden calf. This, was, this worship was mixed with a raucous, deviant, vile immorality, a syncretism that they mixed with their worship, a big gross party. It says in Exodus, they rose up to play, meaning they got up every morning and party. So when you think about the people of Israel worshiping this golden calf, don't think about religious ritual. Think about a frat party. That's what was going on down there. Yeah, there was worship involved. There was, there was pagan ritual involved. There was some religious stuff happening, but primarily, as it ultimately happens in a lot of false religions, is there was gross party. So God reveals to Moses what's happening. He doesn't tell him the specifics yet, but he tells him things are going bad down there. You need to go down there. Moses goes down there, sees this chaotic party, and that's, of course, when he, in anger, throws down the tablets. A plague is eventually sent by God among the people to punish them for this. Many folks are judged with this plague. They're driven from the mountain, away from the mountain where they had gathered at the foot. And Moses goes to God, and he intercedes for the people. There God makes a great promise about their victory, their future victory in Canaan, that they will indeed find a home there in Canaan land, and that will be the promised land. And he says there, the phrase that God says there is, Moses you have found favor in my sight. And at that point, Moses and all of us probably with him might say, oh, hey, well, we can earn God's favor. Now, Moses was good. He was walking with God up there, getting the commandments, and the people were parting. He's the only one that was good, and so God rewarded him. Isn't that true, God? And can you imagine a conversation with God when God said, Moses, I found favor with you, and I'm going to give you mercy. And Moses could have said, well, I, that's right, because I was doing the right thing. I was making the right decisions. I was trying to walk with you and be spiritually sensitive. But God looks at Moses and says simply, no, Moses, I have mercy on whom I decide to have mercy on. And I harden whom I decide to harden. And that's where this verse is from. I showed mercy upon you simply because of my character. My decision to have mercy upon you, Moses, is, is not based on what you're doing. It's based simply on because of the fact that I have mercy. You're no different than the rest of the sinners. Oh, you may be a little bit better in some ways, but you're probably a little bit worse in other ways. The reason that you are walking with me is not because of your character, but because of my character. And I have decided to have mercy 
upon you. God says, essentially, it's about my freedom to choose, not about you to serving it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is ultimately what is true and what is fair. It has to be ultimately up to God and His sovereign will. It can't be in the hands of sinners because our choices will always be unfair and unjust and be tainted with sin. Let me give you an illustration of this. Some of you remember all the way back to primary school and you were on the, the, the field for recess or the playground for recess and, and there was a game. And, and, and what do you do when there's a game with two teams? Well, you pick a couple of captains and then the captains take turns choosing who will be on their team. And who do they choose? Well, I choose Sally because she can throw the ball well, and I choose Joe because he can run really fast, and I choose this person because of that. And, of course, the last couple of people that are on there are the ones that aren't really good at anything, and they just got to get shoved into the team. Very unjust, prejudicial, unfair, based on human achievement alone. That's how we do choosing and picking and decision-making. It's simply based on accomplishment, it's based on what we can see is good, based on how fast someone can run, or how, if it were up to us when it comes to salvation, it would be based on, on, on achievement. It would simply be based on works and effort and merit, and we would choose the people, just like we were in recess many years ago, choosing people based on their accomplishment. This is partial. This is biased. This is prejudicial. This is not blind justice. But this is exactly what people want God to do when it comes to election. They want God to make His choices based upon what people are doing. He looks down and identifies, perhaps in the future, looking down the quarters of time, what they're going to do, and then He chooses them because of what they're going to do. And He bases all of His decision-making and all of His salvation on that prejudicial, biased, unjust decision that we're making. He builds his plan, he builds his election, he builds his decisions to save on their character, not on his character. And so Paul is pointing this out. No, God's decisions are completely detached from human will, from human decisions, from human achievement. This is something God does on his own. It emanates from his own character. It emanates from his own desire, his own will, his own plan. Man's plan for salvation, even if it's very logical, even if it sort of fits with your own mindset of, well, this makes sense, God does this, God does that, the ideas of free will, the ideas of genuine love, the ideas of all these things, we sort of base it on our own sense of logic, and God says, no way, it's not built on your sense of logic, it's not built on your fairness, because all of that is corrupt, it's tainted, it's prejudicial. It flows from my will alone. By quoting this verse from Exodus, Paul is reminding them God's choice of anyone is, is not prejudicial like ours. It is anchored in His will alone, not ours. If you have produced some sort of righteousness without God, and we established this when we studied Romans years ago in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's, these things are done, and maybe they're good on a surface level. Maybe they're good on this earth. They are not true saving righteousness. They're surface, and they're ultimately corrupt. They're as filthy rags, as Isaiah would say. God's decision is not based on those things. His decisions are completely impartial, completely just. God simply decides to have mercy and compassion on whom He chooses, and He chooses whom He will not have mercy and compassion on, whom He would harden. Totally unbiased, totally just, no partiality, no bias, no merit system for salvation. It is simply based out of His perfect will. 
Verse 16 there is the logical conclusion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this gives us point number two. Salvation flows from God's character, not ours. Salvation flows from God's character, not ours. What does your salvation depend on? Your works? The guy who works the hardest? The girl who's most spiritual? It says it depends on what? Not on human will. I don't know how people who can read that or read John 1.13. It says we are spiritually born again, not of the will of man, but of God. I really know how people can read that and say, oh, no, but it ultimately boils down to man's will. And what's the Bible say our condition is before we are saved? Free or in bondage? Alive or dead in sin? Able to perform righteous deeds? Or don't know God and there is none righteous, not even one. Folks, what we need is the Holy Spirit to come and change our hearts before we're even aware of our need to repent and have faith. We need God to come and work in our hearts by the Spirit to release us from that bondage and to give us a a new nature and a new heart before we're even ready, even able to have faith in Christ and believe. That word there, exertion, in the Greek it's trekain. Some translations it says, him who runs. It's sort of a stadium analogy. It's a sports analogy. At the Colosseum or the Hippodrome, they would have races, and the, 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 the idea is whoever's fastest wins. Again, this goes back to chapter 2 of Romans. When your standard of righteousness is other people, you can always find people that you're beating in the race of life, that you are better than. Well, I'm no Hitler. I'm better than this guy at work. I'm better than my spouse. I'm better than this person or that person. You can always find people who you think are, you are better than. But Paul erases that. He, he says if that's your standard, you can always find those people. But if your standard is the righteousness of God, everyone falls short of the glory of God. Everyone is a failure. Paul says it depends not on human will, not on exertion or running or winning, beating other people out in your position towards heaven. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is what Jesus said in one of my favorite parables that Jesus ever told, Luke 18, Let me read it to you, verse 10 of Luke 18 and following. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And if you can remember back to our discussion of the apostle Matthew and what tax collectors were engaged in, I mean, this is basically uh, the ancient mafia. They were engaged in extortion. They were engaged in all kinds of uh, of horrible acts. They were associated not with the good people, but with the, with the prostitutes and the people, and not just associated, but mingling with and, 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 and buddies with and friends of these kind of people. That's what a tax collector was. The Pharisee, on the other hand, was the guy who was winning the race in terms of righteousness, in terms of uh, public righteousness. And so Jesus gives this parable. There's one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, and both of these men come to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God... I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Human righteousness. 
human wisdom, human achievement, human merit. But the tax collector, Jesus said, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be hum- humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How is a person saved? By coming up to God and look what I did, look what I did, look what I did, look at my merit. I chose you. I did this, I did this, I did this. No, Jesus says. It's a person who's absolutely broken. You go to God and you know what you deserve. You go to God and you know precisely where you ought to be. You're no different than Hitler. You're no different than any other person on this earth. You're no better. You're no more righteous. If you did produce something that, more, that is tradable in this world, that is on the surface more moral, God destroys all that. It's not powered by the Spirit. It's not in faith to God. It's all in faith in self. It's all an effort to save, so it's all self-righteousness. And so in some sense, it's even worse than the sins that might be perpetrated by someone like a tax collector. On the other hand, you have this man who just knows this, and he says, I understand there's nothing I can do, nothing to, you, nothing to you I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I only trust what you have accomplished on my behalf. I cannot, even my faith, I cannot produce this. It is only something that you can produce in me. It is only something that I can give glory to you. The bottom line is, if you reject the idea of God's election, if you reject God's total authority in salvation, you can't really say with a straight face, God alone saves. Because ultimately, it's up to you. You can't sing with any level of honesty in Christ alone. Because you really trust a little bit, at least a small way, in that decision. And by the way, that's the most important decision. I trust in me and my decision-making. I trust my spiritual sensitivity. I heard the gospel and I believed. You can never again sing with, with honesty, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and His righteousness. Why? Because you depend on your own righteousness and your own choices, at least in that one single most important choice. Again, don't forget, we do not deny, and I'll repeat this again and again to assure you, we do not deny that in the infinite mind and the wisdom of God, we must nevertheless choose God, we must nevertheless have faith and repent, but ultimately we must do so knowing that it is God in us both for the willing and the working of His good pleasure. How that works out, how, I, how to understand all that, I have no idea. I don't have the mind of God. But I will say this, if we start preaching a gospel and ignoring this idea of salvation just to get more numbers, just because maybe it's a little offensive, just because we are going to begin to present a skewed view of salvation. And we will try to steal glory from God that is due His alone. More biblical support for this we can see in verse 17. Look at it with me. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Final point, salvation is by God's plan, not ours. Now, interesting to note here, the example that Paul gives here, it's clear God didn't use Pharaoh Pharaoh to glorify himself by saving Pharaoh. 
but by Pharaoh being lost and damned. Does this, going back to one of our first studies in this, does this violate God's moral will? Yes. Did this grieve God? Of course it did. Does God want all to be saved and come to repentance? Of course He does. But in His sovereign will, He has deemed appropriate that people would be hardened. As early as Exodus 4, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, let me say this, and I want you to listen to me very clearly. God hardening Pharaoh's heart was not inconsistent with Pharaoh's own desires, okay? Is that that getting in? It's not like Pharaoh was there saying, oh, I just want to believe in Jesus, and God said, sorry, you weren't chosen, harden. No, Pharaoh hardened his heart. In fact, you can read that even more than what you read about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. You read that Pharaoh hardened his heart over and over again. So what God did was not inconsistent with what Pharaoh wanted. In essence, this goes back to what we studied in Romans chapter 1. This is not so much God doing something in their heart as it is God leaving them to their own devices, abandoning them, removing any amount of grace or, or, faith or, 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 or uh, mercy or godly desires. He just removes that and gives him over to his own desires. It's not so much that God was working in his heart to be hard as much as it is God just stepping away from the man and the man becoming hard. We are all born with hard hearts. We're all born dead in sin. We're all born rejecting God. I want you to know, in our children's program, we do not have included in our curriculum how to be mean, how to say mine, how to bite other children. We don't have that in our curriculum. But you put a brand new toy in the middle of a bunch of three-year-olds, even though we've not have taught him how to do this, what do you have? You have biting, you have yelling, you have people saying, mine. We sin because we're sinners. We don't become sinners when we sin. We sin because it flows from our heart. It's where we are. It's our own desire. And unless God comes and changes that about our hearts, our hearts are hardened. If someone has faith, if someone repents, this is a gift that God has given them. It's not natural to them. When people sin and reject, it's not because necessarily God is working sin into their heart. It's because God is not giving them that mercy. He's giving them over to what they desire, and that's what was true for, for Pharaoh. Uh, theologians, if you're interested, we reject the dogma. It's a dogma. It's a doctrine called equal ultimacy. Uh, this is just an asterisk for those of you who are interested in such things. This says God consigns people to hell and heaven and uh, it's with no respect to what they do. In fact, they don't die for their own sins. They die because of God's choice. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches die, that people die and go to hell for their sins. We do not believe that people die and go to hell simply because of God's choice to send them to hell. They die and they pay for their sins where they, and they go to hell and continue to sin and reject God and hate God for eternity. That is what is taught in Scripture. What is not taught is this idea that God works, and people are neutral, and they're, they could go either way, and God sort of works really hard to make someone angry and sinful and mean. No, God simply lets them go. This is why in the Westminster Confession, when it talks about people whom God has marked for condemnation, it uses phrases like this, that God passes by them, leaves them, on to their own, leaves them off to their own desires. God does not have to work in their heart because 
left alone, they will be reprobate. They will turn away. And so Romans 1 says they're given over to their own desires. Reprobation happens naturally unless God intervenes in His mercy. So when it says He hardened Pharaoh, doesn't mean this is contrary to what Pharaoh wanted or what Pharaoh willed. It's not as, again, it's not as though Pharaoh was sitting there in his palace thinking, boy, I'd really like to have faith, and, and God spoke to him, sorry, you're not one of the elect. No, Pharaoh wanted to harden his heart. Pharaoh hated God. Pharaoh despised the God of Israel, and God gave him over to his own desires. Now, this is vital, important to our understanding of this section. Why did God Pharaoh's heart He hardened Pharaoh's heart because he had this massive plan to save the Jews. Had had Pharaoh been soft, he would have let them stay and blessed them and let them be citizens of Egypt. But God had a plan. He wanted to save them from out of Egypt. He did not want them to be in Egypt and become Egypt. They would have ended up blending in with Egypt. There would be no more people of God. God had a plan. He had a massive plan of salvation. And because of that massive plan that would glorify himself, God chose Pharaoh to be damned. He left Pharaoh to his own devices, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Moving forward in God's redemptive plan, the story through the history, it brings us to the New Testament. And the Bible teaches, especially in these three chapters of Romans, that that the Jews now, it's not The pagans, it's the Jews that are hardened. These are the people who despise God, who hate God, who who spit at His Son, who crucify His Son. But it's all a part of God's plan to not only put His Son on the cross to redeem people from sin, but also to get the gospel to go throughout all the world, to bring salvation to the Gentiles. The Jews reject. The gospel goes all over the world. It's all part of God's massive, God-glorifying plan. This is all part of God's plan. And every person, every individual, we don't know who they are. We can't tell. We just, we're responsible to just sow seed. We don't know who, whose heart is what kind of soil. We have no idea. I don't want to know. I just want to give the gospel to people, take part in that. God's sovereign will is hidden from me, and I'm fine with that. God has plans. I don't know what they are. I just want to do my duty. Verse 18, so then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God has this sovereign plan for every individual in the universe, and it all leads to God's glory. He's either going to glorify himself by by showing mercy and grace and kindness and love and forgiveness, but he also can show glory by, by executing justice and judgment and righteousness and doing what what their sin deserves. His glory, His holiness, His perfection will be displayed in both. It's not just displayed in salvation. It's displayed in both, and it must be displayed in both. And so God has a sovereign plan that we cannot see, we do not know, but God has a sovereign plan, and He gives us a little peek right here about Pharaoh, that Pharaoh clearly was chosen to glorify God by God demonstrating His justice and judgment upon him. All part of his plan. That's what verse 18 is saying. Now, these are deep and difficult truths. I know we've kind of gone to seminary this morning and put several of you to sleep. So what I want to do at the end before we have a benediction and then the Lord's table, what I want to do is uh, at the risk of being patronizing, I do want to to make some applications, okay? Some of you may be thinking, like, what does this have to do with anything? Just some sort of 
high steeple, no people type sermon. I don't really care about all this. It's something that you may have debated in seminary, Pastor John. I don't really care about all this stuff. Let me show you some application. The doctrine of election, will, will that affect the way you worship God? You bet it will. The way you sing when you come in this room? You bet it will. Because if you know that you are 100% unworthy, that you did nothing, when you know that, you're going to sing louder. You're going to praise God more. That even that you, when you had faith, and even when you did repent, and even when you did respond to God, even that was a gift from God, lest any man should boast. When you come in this room, you will sing louder. You will worship more. You will find ways to honor God like you never have before. My mom told me one time about years ago when she was in the Middle East and she saw some nomads. They sort of came out of their tents and they all spread out and they began to face Mecca and worship Allah. She said, first, she said, first my heart went up to them in compassion, but she said at the same time, she said down deep in her heart, there was praise to God. Lord, you gave, I gave you no reason to choose me. I am no different than any lost, false God-worshiping person on the planet Earth. And yet, because of your mercy, you just decided to choose me and to save me and bring the gospel to me. Yeah, I gave you no reason. I did nothing. Praise be to your name. What about your evangelism? You say, Pastor John, if if you believe that God just chooses people, do you just sort of not evangelize anybody, just let that happen? No, because you read the Bible and you realize the way God saves His people is by sending His other people out to give birth to these spiritual children. It's almost like we're an OBGYN to spiritual birth. Births are going to happen. Babies are going to be born. But God has declared in His mercy to include us in that wonderful moment of salvation. God will most assuredly save the people whom He has chosen, but He's also decreed the way He will save them is by the faithful telling of the gospel. And so we get to be included in this magnificent plan of God on this rescue mission to save His children. Wasn't that wonderful? I don't need any kind of credit for saving people. I don't need any kind of... uh, 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 merit and saying, well, if it weren't for me, this person wouldn't be saved. I don't need that to be happy about people being saved. Just to know that I've been obedient and I've spread the seed and every once in a while when I do that, God is glorified to include me in the birth of his new child. What a wonderful joy. What a wonderful glory. And if that's not enough for you, if you have to take credit somehow for the saving of souls, then I would question all of your theology and your motives for evangelism to begin with. What about my love for the church, other, others of God's children? What amazing a truth. We are the ecclesia. Like I said, that's, that means, that word means the called out ones, the chosen ones. We, are, we have a bond. We have a common destiny. We have a common home. This is not our home. And so we, we gather together as sort of a, a picture of what heaven is supposed to be like. It's not some big event where it's just people gathering for something cool and amazing. No, this is God's people. And yes, there may be people who gather on a Sunday morning in a church or watch on, on YouTube or whatever, and, and they're not believers. But, but the church is now defined as, as a people of God gathering to keep one another accountable, to, to challenge one another, to, to help one another in this walk to follow Jesus Christ. 
What about your perseverance? If God has foreknown and predestined and called, if God has elected me for eternal glory, I, I can endure any burden. This is just a short thing. It's a light burden. In fact, any burden I have would, would never compare to the burden Jesus carried for me. And so, this is simply a mild way that I can look like Jesus. There is no power of hell. There is no scheme of man that can pluck me from his hand. So until he returns or call me home, here in the power of Christ I stand, come what may. Paul says earlier in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God, Romans 8.35. Why? You go a few verses earlier. Why can nothing separate us from God? Why can we not lose our salvation? Paul says there's a stream of the way he saves people. It says in Romans 8.30, whom God predestines are those whom He effectually calls. Whom He calls, He justifies. Whom He justifies, He always brings them to glory. He glorifies them. So we know that it starts in the mind of God. It ends in the mind of God. It is all God from start to finish, and we give Him the glory. So what Christians do when they get to heaven, they receive crowns of glory, but what do they do? Keep them? Put them in a case? Show people? Hey, look what I did. No. What do they do with their crowns? They cast them at His feet, because we know all along it was God. You know that old story about the footprints in the sand, right? And the story goes, the poem goes, that there was one footprint, and the guy asked God, why did you leave me this time? He said, that's when I was carrying you. If you understand this correctly, what you realize, there's only one footprint through the whole time, and it's always God carrying you. No matter what you do, you need God to carry you, inspire you, enable you all the way to glory. Because of God's election, we can endure any trial. We can have fellowship with the saints like we never could before. We can be a part of God saving sinners. We can sing like we've never sung before. The doctrine of election brings great joy, great unity, even peace. Sometimes Christians think that bringing up this might cause disruption and a lack of peace. But this actually, any truth in the Bible actually brings great unity and joy greater fellowship in the church of God. But let's pray we would submit to these truths. Father, we thank you for these things. We thank you for these truths. We ask that you would bury them in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that if there are those watching, perhaps even someone here who may not know you, we pray that you would open their eyes, open their hearts to your salvation. We pray that they would indeed be the elect. They would be those whom you have chosen to glorify yourself through salvation, through demonstrating your mercy Lord, bring them to salvation even now. All of us, Lord, we want to grow. We want to be sanctified in the truths that you have set for us here. Help us do this in the name of Jesus. Amen.